From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. An independent investigation found Aurora police critically mishandled an encounter with Elijah McLean before his death. What did lawmakers have to say in last night's special Aurora City Council meeting? Then Tommy Ryan owns a shoe repair shop in downtown Denver. We spoke with him last June. His business was struggling. I mostly deal with downtown business people, and a lot of those people are not working right now, too, so they don't need no shoes. We ask him, how's business now? He's just one of the Coloradans we're following up with as Colorado approaches a year in the pandemic. And Democratic Representative Joe Neguse from Boulder has a new leadership role in Congress. He plans to use it to help address wildfires. Plus, the new head of the United States Parachute Association breaks records and barriers for women. When you support Colorado Public Radio, you're helping to keep Coloradans informed and connected through trusted nonprofit news coverage and essential inspiring music. And when you give now, you'll help feed a family in Colorado thanks to a partnership with the Singer Family Foundation and food banks across the state. Show your support for our community with a donation now. Give at CPR.org. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Aurora police made crucial mistakes in their treatment of Elijah McLean within 10 seconds of stopping him on the street, independent investigators said Monday. Within minutes, the officers applied two carotid chokeholds. Soon afterward, an EMS worker injected him with sedative ketamine. McLean died a few days later. There was never enough reason to subdue McLean, an investigator told the Aurora City Council Monday night. Here's Jonathan Smith, who led the independent investigation. He's director of the Washington Lawyers Committee for civil rights and urban affairs. It is important to note that neither the caller nor any of the officers identified a crime that they thought Mr. McLean had committed, was committing, or was about to commit. On Monday, investigators released a 157-page report on the confrontation that took place in August 2019. I'm joined by Denverite reporter Esteban Hernandez, who's been covering the case. Esteban, welcome. Hi, Avery. The investigators said they weren't assigning any legal responsibility or determining the cause of McLean's death, but they said police were wrong to put him in chokeholds and the EMS worker shouldn't have administered ketamine. What kind of reaction did you hear from city leaders yesterday? Aurora Mayor Mike Kaufman called it a wound on our city, and uh, Councilwoman Allison Hiltz called the investigation, uh, quote, damning. And I'll note that Hiltz was a member of the Public Safety Committee that recommended the investigation last year. McLean's family has filed a wrongful death suit against the city and more than a dozen police and medical workers. How did the family react to Monday's report? McLean's uh, mother, Shanine, issued a statement through her attorney, essentially praising the report's finding. She said in the statement, the investigation showed Aurora is responsible for her son's death. We'll go through some of the findings and recommendations in a moment, but first a refresher. Who was Elijah McLean and why did police stop him in the first place? So it was August 24th, uh, 2019. Uh, 911 got a call that night of a suspicious person. The first officer to respond, uh, Nathan Woodyard, uh, decided McLean, who had not committed a crime, was acting suspicious by wearing a face mask and waving his arms while in an area uh, Wood, uh, Woodyard said had a high crime rate. 
I understand the officer interacted with McLean very quickly upon arriving on the scene. Yes, he had his hands on him within 10 seconds. And are the investigators saying the officers didn't have enough evidence to restrain McLean? Yeah, no reasonable suspicion that he was involved in uh, criminal activity. The two carotid chokeholds, what did investigators determine about those? Well, that the police weren't justified in physically restraining him. Uh, The first hold lasted about a second. It was done in response to a claim from an officer who said uh, McLean was reaching for an officer's gun. Uh, The second hold was enough to render McLean either partially or fully unconscious. And uh, speaking specifically to that second hold, the investigator said uh, McLean had limited ability to reach um, the officer's gun because uh, Woodyard uh, was right behind him. Another area that's been very controversial here is the use of ketamine. What did the investigation reveal about that? It was administered based on a paramedic's recommendation that McLean seemed to be in a state of excited delirium. Uh, It's important to say that they didn't find, and quoting here, conclusive evidence that the ketamine caused or even contributed to McLean's death. Uh, But they did find that the decision to administer uh, was based just on a very quick uh, visual observation. There were several recommendations in this report. Were there one or two that stood out that would likely have a big impact if they were adopted? Well, a a big one is reviewing how cops are trained on stops and frisks. Uh, Investigators recommend all these encounters be documented. And investigators recommended making it clear that de-escalation is required for all encounters. And this could potentially change how cops are expected to behave uh, out on the field. And what are the next steps here? What powers does the council have now that the report is done and the recommendations released? Well, uh, Mayor uh, Kaufman mentioned a follow-up meeting to let city lawmakers ask uh, investigators questions. Um, But we don't know yet how many of these recommendations will end up being implemented by the city of Aurora. Denverite reporter Esteban Hernandez has been following developments in the case of Elijah McClain. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. With snow and ice on the ground, this would normally be Tommy Ryan's busy season. Ryan has a shoe repair shop in downtown Denver. My colleague Ryan Warner visited last week. Some people don't realize their shoes need repair until their feet start getting wet from walking around on holes in the bottom. It's always been the busiest time, and summer's always been slow. So you try to see if you can make enough money during the winter to keep you going for the few summer months. This winter, business is at a standstill. His downtown clientele is mostly working from home, so Ryan's workbench sits empty. When business is normal, that whole rack would be full of shoes and stuff that I I need to repair and look at. The the ones that's up there now, they already been repaired. So look around the room, nothing. We first introduced you to this 71-year-old cobbler in June. Ryan was struggling then too, behind on rent, business at a trickle. And his story resonated. People sent in shoes from all over the country, raised thousands of dollars for him online. I've had some pretty good customers. I had people walk in the door and just give me money, say, you know, try to keep keep your head up, you know. And, and this one lady in Aurora, I, I bet at least twice a month, she sent me $40 in the mail, cash money, you know. So 
There's some good people out there. Ryan says he's trying to make that money last as long as he possibly can. His landlords helped with rent, too. But it's touch and go. And what Tommy Ryan wants more than anything is to work. That's why I couldn't just retire, because I like working, you know. I like interacting with the people that's coming in, because you meet somebody from all walks of life, you know. Tommy Ryan's mind races, especially at night, about what he'd do if he had to close up shop for good. While his mental health suffers, he's managed to stay physically healthy and says he's gotten both doses of a COVID vaccine. I'm glad to have it because I don't think you stand a chance without it. I felt like I was catching the flu or something right after I had the shot, right away. And then some days I'd be good, some days I wasn't. And even this morning when I woke up, I like, I had to take some... Uh, Alka-Seltzer cold medicine to make me feel fairly normal again, you know? Besides the vaccine, another bright spot. A customer walks in with a giant box. Christina Ibanez reveals the brand new leather boots inside. I have the unfortunate foot size of being a 10 and a half in women's, which is a whole yeah. thing. Um, so these are a 10. And they fit for the most part, but they're tight around my toe box. So I think I need them stretched out. I can out. stretch your width out. Yeah. yeah. We'll do that. It's so hard. I got them on sale, $65. They mark a lot of stuff down there. That's that's a good deal. Ibanez, who lives nearby, has been working remotely for the past year. But that doesn't mean she pads around her house shoeless. I struggle to get my day started well when I am in my slippers and my pajamas. So... As a rule for myself, I get dressed every morning and putting on shoes is a psychological trick of like, I have my shoes on, so I'm supposed to be working. Working, which is exactly what Tommy Ryan of Denver hopes to do more. He and Christina Ibanez spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner when he visited Ryan's shop in downtown Denver last week. As Colorado approaches one year in the pandemic, Ryan is just one of the folks that we've spoken with who we're checking back in on to find out how they are and what's changed and what hasn't. After the break, Democratic Representative Jonah Goose of Boulder has a new leadership role in Congress, and he plans to use it to help address wildfires. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Turn the page with Colorado Matters. Read a book with us, then meet the author. This time, Other People's Pets by Boulder novelist R.L. Mazes. I thought readers might really enjoy a character who can see the world almost through the eyes of animals. Join Colorado Matters Saturday, February 27th to meet the author. Sponsored by Wanabo Love Keller Mendenhall Smith Wealth Management Group of Wells Fargo Advisors. Tickets at cpr.org slash turn the page. A Colorado congressman has a new leading role on the environment. Democrat Jonah Goose of Boulder will take over the House Subcommittee on National Parks, Forests, and Public Lands. He spoke with CPR climate team reporter Sam Brash last week about how he'll address wildfires. Representative Nagoose, thank you very much for doing this. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Sam, for having me. Quickly tell us about this subcommittee. Uh, how does it matter to people in Colorado? You know, Colorado, as you know, is home to treasured public lands that make up just over about 36% of our uh, total acreage, you know, ensuring uh, that a Coloradan uh, has uh, not just seat the table, but a leadership role on this particular subcommittee with respect to funding decisions for various agencies that manage uh, that land, such as the Forest Service and uh, the BLM and many other uh, regulatory agencies, is really important. 
So it's an honor and I'm looking forward to getting to work. Your first action in this new position was to reintroduce a plan for a 21st century civilian conservation corps. The 20th century CCC, you know, employed more than 3 million people during the Great Depression. Is, is that the scale you have in mind here for a future program? Well, it, that's precisely right. You know, we are very excited about the 21st century uh, Civilian Conservation Corps uh, plan that we reintroduced this year as Civil Conservation Corps, which was such a successful program used uh, during the, the 1930s, uh, devised by President Roosevelt uh, and uh, as part of his New Deal program, really provided us with a great benchmark, uh, a template, if you will, that we could emulate for the 21st century. So we're very excited about the proposal and and uh, we wanted to make sure that, that we hit the ground running uh, with uh, this new position that uh, we're, we're very honored to have. And, and it's a pretty big bill. We're looking at $40 billion, more or less, uh, for fire prevention, for public land work. What will that let the federal government do that it's not doing now? So a couple of different things. Uh, there are a number of, of uh, programs within the federal government that have been woefully underfunded for decades. And that has uh, in, in the view of many, uh, caused a, a number of collateral consequences impacting uh, the proliferation uh, and the pervasiveness of the wildfires that our state has experienced. I, I sure you remember President Trump uh, saying that the real solution to big wildfires was to rake the forest, you know, suggesting that the answer here is to reduce fuels. Um, with this new proposal, are you at least like partially agreeing with him on that? Fairly straightforward. We're trying to depoliticize these issues. Uh, we all recognize that forest management and ultimately addressing the significant consequences of climate change uh, and doing what we can uh, to, uh, to fight climate change are important core parts of the work ahead in addressing wildfires in the Rocky Mountain West. And so uh, this proposal certainly speaks to that. It funds both sides of that equation. And I think that's, uh, that, that's a, a balanced approach uh, to solving this problem that uh, is woefully needed. You know, Congress has a busy schedule. President Biden is pushing a massive stimulus package, an immigration overhaul that I know you're a part of, uh, public health measures to beat back the pandemic. Can you really find time for public lands and wildfires? Look, at the end of the day, uh, for Colorado uh, and for the communities I represent, uh, time is of the essence. Uh, there's simply no time to waste. Wildfire season will be upon us again in short order. And as we know, those seasons, because of climate change, are, are growing longer each and every day. So we intend to push. Uh, you know, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, hopefully we can uh, uh, move towards an infrastructure bill that includes the components of the Triple C bill that we just introduced uh, today. Okay, so th I guess that's important. You hope to see this wrapped into a, some sort of bigger infrastructure bill? Yes, that's my hope. I think that the 21st Century Conservation Corps uh, is uh, a proposal that fits squarely within President Biden's uh, plans of Build Back Better, which, of course, he talked about at great length during the campaign, and he has built upon that. Part of those investments, in my view, should be into the forest and public lands infrastructure of our country. You're the first Coloradan to take over the subcommittee, the first Black person. How do you think that'll shape your work on the committee? Well, I think it's helpful to have uh, a Coloradan uh, who... Uh, you know, has grown up hiking in Rocky Mountain National Park, uh, leading this particular subcommittee so that we could do everything we can uh, to support those, uh, those those wonderful, you know, wilderness areas. So, as I said, looking forward to getting to work and pushing forward on these priorities that I think matter a great deal to the people in our state.
That's Democratic Representative Joe Neguse of Boulder speaking with CPR's Sam Brash last week about how he's pushing Congress to take action on wildfires and other public land issues. She holds 23 world records for jumping out of airplanes. And now Melissa Lowe of Montrose is the new national director of the United States Parachute Association, the self-governing group for the sport of skydiving. I recently spoke with Lowe about the growing sport and how she hopes to get more women involved. You're a third generation skydiver. So this is like a family tradition then. It is a family tradition. My grandmother used to tell me that it was in my blood, and now I believe her. (laughs) How old were you when you first skydived? I made my first jump when I was five years old. I did a tandem jump, and I did about 11 tandems by the time I turned 11 and did my first solo jump at 16. Wow. You mentioned tandem skydiving. That's where you're strapped into an instructor during the jump. So tell me about how your grandparents got into skydiving. My impression is that recreational skydiving hasn't been a sport that long. That's correct. My grandfather started us all. He was a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne. And when he got out, he discovered sport parachute jumping and took his two sons with him, one being my dad. And as they say, the rest is history. So when you're a five-year-old, knowing that you're in a family of skydivers and you're about to make your first jump, are you nervous? Or is it something that you've been looking forward to like since you can remember? You know, I really don't have a recollection. The only thing I do remember was that it was my normal life. It was something that I went to every day. It was something that we were surrounded with because it was a family business. So it seemed very normal. I don't remember... I don't remember too much about it, except until I got older. When I got older, I remember being nervous. But my husband and I took our son out for his first jumps, and I got to relive a lot of that through him kind of resurrecting some feelings, which was an incredible experience. Wow, I love that. You have recently been chosen as the new national director for the United States Parachute Association. What do you hope to accomplish in that new role? There's a lot of things that I have, but on a broader scale, number one is for sure to help inspire and get more women into the sport of skydiving. And I think a lot of people don't understand skydiving, so I'd love to do more promotions of the sport outside of our industry to help, I guess, normalize it. Because a lot of people think of us as just adrenaline junkies and crazy people, but it's very far from the truth. We're very methodical. We're very meticulous with our gear and training, and we continue to evolve in the sport with technology and techniques and training methods, etc. So I'm hoping to, uh, not just for women, but for the sport as a whole, to inspire more people, whether it's just to learn about it, try it for the first time, or maybe pick up a new hobby or become a competitor. So giving some other people more like the experience that you had when you were a kid, where it was just a normal part of life. Exactly. <laughs> Why do you think that there is a gap in the number of men and women in the sport, that there are a lot more men? You know, this is a conversation we have a lot in the sport, and it hasn't been talked about a lot. I don't think a lot of people realize skydiving is still a young sport, that it was only starting to become popular in the 70s and the 80s. And so we still have a lot to discover. 
if I were to just put my two cents on it, I think it's because women uh, priorities change with family and or have a different perception of danger and risk versus reward. But it's really hard to pinpoint exactly why, because the numbers state that 50% of men and 50% of women come out to do a tandem jump, but it's usually men who continue on with the sport. It's changed. We definitely have been growing the numbers of women in the sport, but it's something that we're still discovering and trying to figure out. So you actually hold 23 world records for skydiving. Tell me about some of those jumps and what makes them world records. Oh my goodness. I love doing world record jumps because I thrive on challenge and putting together a world record is no easy feat. Most of these world records, I have been involved in the organization, the logistical part of it. So it is a whole year to two years of preparation. So you start to meet people from around the world that are getting ready for this. And it's really exciting to welcome so many people to this next level journey. And then when you get to the events, you have to make sure you have everything arranged. You have all the aircraft, you have the oxygen, because when we go above a certain altitude, we have to wear supplemental oxygen so we don't get hypoxia. And then you have to engineer the formation of the planes, the formation of the skydive, put people in the correct positions, and it is a challenge. And that feeling of success is so addicting for me. (laughs) So I keep going on. So what makes these world records are the number of people who are connecting. Does that mean touching in the sky? Yeah, exactly. So we build these flower-shaped patterns. And depending on the discipline, depends on where you connect together. We call them grips. So when we fly head to earth, which is my favorite discipline, we connect holding hands. When you do the belly flying, you can connect on people's legs and arms, Uh, So there's a lot, there's just a lot of different shapes that you can create per what discipline you fly. This sounds risky to have so many people jumping right next to each other, to have different crafts flying in the air. And at some point, all these people need to get far enough away to open their parachutes. Do you ever get nervous about your own safety or the safety of the people you're leading? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think this is where sportsmanship comes in because I never rest on my laurels that I have a lot of time in the sport. I have a lot of experience under my belt, having so many world records that I train just as hard as anybody else, not just for my performance level, but because of safety. And I think it's a good testament because when people see me doing that, they want to train. So they're doing the same thing trying to keep us all safe. But yes, absolutely. Do you have any plans to break any other world records soon? We do. In fact, a lot of them got postponed from last year. But the one that I'm really looking forward to is we are celebrating the 101st anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which is the women's right to vote. This fall in 2021, with a 101-way women's vertical world record. And I'm part of that organizing team. So we are trying to host camps and navigating through these uncertain times to try to prepare that for that feat this year. Before we go, I want to ask you to do something unusual. If I close my eyes and we imagine we're on your favorite kind of jump, a head-to-earth jump, what do we see and what are we feeling? Oh my goodness. So everyone in the plane is really, really quiet. They're focused, visualizing on their jumps. 
They're not moving around a lot because the more you move, the more oxygen you expend, and you want to keep your energy levels high. So everyone's still and focused and calm. And the only thing you can hear is the hum of the engines. The door opens and a rush of wind comes in. And then you just line up in the plane and you wait for everyone before you to jump out. And you waste, you waste no time getting out when they jump out. And it's a burst of energy. You get out and you look up and you can see all of the planes and everyone jumping out. You have to be super skilled and you have to trust the engineering of the formation. And then you fly your fastest to get on level with the formation, pick up your grips, hold on, fly steady, calm, and strong. And then we have audible altimeters that alert us when it's time to break away from the formation. And another rush of energy comes through as you literally race the people next to you to get as far away as you can, and you pull your parachute, and then you realize how you've been holding your breath you catch your breath, but you look around because the skydive is not over. You have 100 plus people to watch out for. You navigate to the landing area, and whether you did the formation or not, it was the most exhilarating experience ever because you are creating history because no one before you has done what you just did. Melissa, that is thrilling. I'm gripping my microphone. That's so exciting. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Melissa Lowe of Montrose speaking with me last month. Lowe was recently elected National Director of the United States Parachute Association. She holds 23 world records in skydiving and hopes to grow the sport's visibility among women. Special thanks to Alexandra McMahon who produced that conversation. Finally today, Michaela Schifrin is officially the best American alpine skier ever. The Colorado native and two-time Olympic gold medalist broke the record when she picked up her sixth world championship at a competition in Italy last week. Schifrin spoke with NBC Sports after her win. I've always been just trying to push the limit and push my own limit first and then trying to push the limit in the sport and I feel like on my really good days I'm doing that and it's a pretty amazing feeling. Schifrin's win comes after a difficult year in which her training was upended by the global pandemic. She stepped away from the World Cup circuit, and she lost her father, Jeff Schifrin. He died last February after an accident at the family home in Edwards, Colorado. Schifrin wrote a song for her late father, which she shared on Instagram earlier this month. And I can see it from far Holding your hand while the nurses dance Colorado Olympian and songwriter Michaela Schifrin with a musical tribute to her father, Jeff, who died one year ago. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Cause I'd rather stay in your arms in